You're listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is baptistchurch.com. Well, amen. I'm going to ask you to remain standing while you're doing that. Children are going to begin to make their way. And... Um, They're making their way, and while they're doing that, I want you to take your Bible, and I want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. And today I'm going to be talking about what it means to be a dad. Uh, I kind of, John, I kind of put the title here, I know I didn't communicate with you, but I put here the title, Principles for dads, and maybe that would be a good title. But if I could say any other thing, I would say this is the greatest story that has ever been told to man, and that is Luke 15, the story, what we call the prodigal son. The word prodigal could be defined as spendthrift, uh, somebody who's throwing away something, and so that's what the prodigal means. And I'm talking today principally to dads. I read a little story of a mom and her four-year-old son, and, and, and uh, the mom and the son were sitting, they were li- looking at a photo album, and as they were looking at this album, uh, the mom said, you see this handsome young man with that, that dark, curly hair? She said, that's your dad. He looked kind of puzzled and confused. And he said, that's my dad? And she said, yes, that's your dad. And he said, well, who's that bald-headed guy in the, sitting in the living room in there? You know, when you think about it, sometimes the truth of the matter is being a dad is a, a tough job. It's tough to be a dad, tough to be a father. It takes its toll. In fact, if we were honest, that's why we have widows and not widowers. In 40 years plus of ministry, I've dealt with a lot more widows. I have a lot more widows than I have widowers. Uh, It's hard to be a parent. These are tough times to be a parent. And so Jesus comes to this story about this particular family. So let's pick up. Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. But let's go back and read verse 1, because you need to know the context. Verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So Jesus began to tell parables, stories. He tells the parable of a lost sheep. Then he tells the parable of a lost coin. And then he tells the parable of a lost son. Verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided up the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together and all, he, and all that he had, and he set off for a far country, a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out. I will go to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He was filled with compassion for him. He, he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no, I'm, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. He's found. So they begin to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on <laughs> your brother has come he replied your father has killed the fattened calf because he is home safe and sound the older brother became angry he refused to go in so his father went out and pleaded with him but he answered his father look all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat. You never let me celebrate with my friends. But when this, this son of yours squanders your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me. And everything, everything that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead. He's alive. He was lost. And now he's been found. Let's pray. The Lord, we thank you and we love you. Wow. What a beautiful story. And Lord, we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Charles Dickens said this was the greatest story ever told to man. Charles Dickens, who wrote The Christmas Carol, who wrote uh, Tale of Two Cities. Charles Dickens, who wrote uh, Oliver Twist, uh, Davy Copperfield, this master. Ralph Emerson Waldo said that Ralph Waldo Emerson said the same thing. This is the greatest story that has ever been told. But this is about a parent. This is about being a parent. Parent, uh, I want you to listen because I thought James Dobson in his book, Strong Will Child, shares this illustration. Emily Williams, you will love this. James Dobson said this. He said, when you go into Kroger, 
when you go into the grocery store and you get your buggy, you never know how it's going to work, right? You get in there, and every once in a while, you'll get that buggy that you just, wee, you just can push it, and it goes straight, it doesn't go right or left, and it's just so much fun to have a buggy that rolls in the direction that you want it to go. He said, but then sometimes you get that buggy, and you know what I'm talking about. It veers to the right, it pulls to the right, it pulls to the left. You're fighting it all the way through the grocery store. And you really don't want to have to go back and get another buggy. And you think, well, it'd probably be the same thing, be just the same old dog and pony show. So all the way through the grocery store, you're having to fight this buggy that is either pulling to the right or left. James Dobson said, that's parenting. You know, some children, it's just, wee! <laughs> They're just so easy. And then there's just some children, they're a fight from the, almost the moment they get there. They're just either pulling to the right or to the left. And in some ways, that's what it means to be a parent. And you may think as a parent that God doesn't understand. God understands. Because when God created Adam and Eve, he wasn't even out of the gate good before they were rebelling. So God understands rebellious, self-willed, defiant children, strong-willed children. God understands that because Adam and Eve were that way. You remember when God comes in the, to the garden and they're hiding? And God asked why they're hiding? And they said, because we're naked. And let me tell you, this is how God said it. Who told you that you were naked? This is the equivalent parent when you look at your child and you go, where did you hear that? God understands what it means to be a parent. Adam and Eve, they don't do any better. Can you imagine the scene when one of the, somebody comes in and, or Eve comes in and says, Adam, get out of here quick. Cain just killed his brother. You know, parenting is, is tough, isn't it? God understands. And so Jesus tells this story, and I agree with Dickens, it's the greatest story I believe ever been told by man, by the God-man. So I call the first point the background of the greatest parable ever told. William Barclay stated, listen to this, because this will give you a little bit of the context here. William Barclay, which is a great commentator, great writer, great preacher, he said the Pharisees gave to the people who did not keep the law a general classification. They called them people of the land. When a man is one of the people of the land, you entrust no money to him. You take no testimony from him. You trust him with no secret. You don't appoint him the guardian of an orphan. You do not make him the custodian of charitable funds. You do not accompany such a man on a journey. A Pharisee was forbidden to be the guest of such a man or to have him as a guest. No business dealings, nor even contact. Barclay went on to say, we will understand these parables more fully if we remember that the strict Jew said, the Pharisee said, there will be no joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, but instead they would say there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated by a holy God. They look forward not to the saving of humanity, but to the destruction of the sinner, the Pharisee. Do you know anybody like that? Are you like that? So here Jesus, you know when I was an officer in the army, one thing I never understood, 
was fraternizing with the enlisted. In fact, I had to have a command sergeant major explain that to me one day when I said the third time, yes, sir, to him, and he was driving the Jeep. He was an older, distinguished. He had fought in Vietnam. I mean, this guy had been around a long time. Here he was with all the stripes, as many stripes as you could put on a man. And I thought to myself, I ought to drive him. He's driving me. I would say, yes, sir. He said, sir, you can't say yes, sir, to me. You're to say, yes, sergeant major, command sergeant major. I didn't understand that. He said, you're not to fraternize with the enlisted. Jesus, in many ways, was hanging around people that Pharisees would never be caught with. I love a motorcycle, and it takes everything in me not to get one now. And one of the first things I said when I got on my own and I began to live my own life, I was going to get a motorcycle and I was going to get a German Shepherd dog. And in the first church I pastored, I had a motorcycle and a German Shepherd. In the second church, I carried that motorcycle and I'll never forget the, the deacons when they met with me the first time. They were telling me a little bit about the community and they said, now we've got one thing over here. We've got a bar and that bar is a horrible place. It's a, it's a blight on this community and boy, they went on and on. And, and, and they went on griping and complaining. People would gripe and complain about that bar. And one day I was on my motorcycle, I was out visiting and I no more looked like a preacher than nothing. And on that motorcycle, I pulled up on that 250 dirt bike, revved the engine up, pulled up there. I mean, spun around a little gravel. Boy, I thought I was something. Got out, went into that bar, walked up to the bar, sat down. The bartender walked over, and I said, give me a Coke. Well, when you order a Coke in a bar, immediately every head turns. Pool tables. Man, it was busy. It was full. Everything. And before long, man, uh, I got to talking to the bartender. Before long, the bar begins to quiet down. People begin to listen. Pool, the pool shooting kind of slows up a little bit. And then finally, one guy decided he'd pick a fight with the preacher. He said, well, what about all those TV preachers? All those millions of dollars sleeping around with all the women, embezzling all that money. And boy, he was going at it. And the bar was dead silent. And man, I answered that question. I talked just as candid and honest. I had the best time in that bar. I've never enjoyed the Coke so much. I left out of there and I got home and when I pulled up on my motorcycle, Sheila heard me, walked out and, and, and she walked out and all of a sudden she got a whiff of me. And she said, where have you been? And man, I was just proud. I said, I've been out of the bar. And man, I had the greatest opportunity to share Christ I've ever had before. Now I was excited about it, but let me tell you, there were some people they didn't like it at all. Why? Because sometimes the truth of the matter is is that we have a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. Jesus was addressing the Pharisee. In fact, the parable, all these parables are about the Pharisee and the Pharisee not wanting to celebrate people who were repenting and coming to Christ. That's what it was all about. In fact, the climax of Luke 15 is not the lost sheep. It's not the lost coin. It's not even the lost son. The climax is the elder brother who refuses to go in and celebrate with the father. And when the father goes out there to the elder, elder brother and puts his arm around him, the elder brother's, he, the elder brother's going, oh, No, I won't come in and I won't party. No! 
He took a third of the estate. You liquidated our, the assets. You took a third of your inheritance and you gave it to him and he wasted it. I will not come in. I will not celebrate. Now we want to paint it and make it look pretty. There's nothing pretty about it. Son's angry. He's got Pharisee in him. I refuse to come in and know I want to know. Take your hand off me. You never, you never, I have obeyed, I've done everything that you told me to do. You never gave me a party. You never killed a goat for me. You never invited my friends. That's religious people. And the father says, son, everything that I have is yours. You own it all. Come in and celebrate. This is the most beautiful picture of Jesus Christ in all the scripture because this was a story told to the Pharisee. And you know what he was saying to the Pharisee? God loves you. I love you. Everything that I have is yours. You're the covenant people of God. Why don't you celebrate with me? That's what it was about. And this is a normal home. You know, Jesus tells this story. His dad, it's a mom, uh, but, but these are two sons. And these two sons are as different as night and day. I wrote this down. The elder brother is a hard worker. He's by the book. He's top student. He's a good kid. He's dependable. He's the who's who bumper sticker. He's the honor roll kid. He's the bragging rights at the gate. When the father went to the gate, probably the men in that community who sat at the gate bragged on this elder brother, talked about all of his accomplishments. Hey, I saw your boy the 4-H exhibit, and man, that prize sheep was unbelievable. He took first prize. The younger, the other. He was a work in progress. He was a daydreamer. He was a kid that you had to wait on because he, kept, he was kept after school. He took remedial English. I threw that in because I've got an earned doctorate. I took remedial English all the way up through everything. He was a kid that went to the Roman chariot races. He took the family donkey off the Mount of Olives, literally off the side of the Mount of Olives. He was called in the wine cellar. He was a ladies' man. They called him Elvis the Pelvis. He liked unkosher food. He loved a good pork loin. Music. He skipped school. He was the kid that walked in and said the dog ate his homework. He smoked back behind the house. His parents were summoned all the time to the teachers' conferences. He pushed the boundaries. He was a constant fight. They were as different as night and day. And I wrote this, what do we know about the father? Most likely he's a disciplined, hardworking, no-nonsense man's man. 
How do we know this? Because the rebellious son wants to leave, which implies that the, the dad was probably, he was probably hard and the boy was tired of the boundaries, the rigorous structured life of the farm. The older son complains as well in verse 29 about the tough life and his attempt to do everything that the father re- required. So the reality is, is that the dad was probably a pretty tough, he was probably a tough, tough bird. Frankie, are you all right? I'm about to lose you, I think. Stay with me. (laughs) But dad, this is it. Here you have a normal family. And here you have these three masculine personalities. Here you have a dad. He's a no-nonsense, straight shooter, disciplined, hard worker. Here you got an elder son that's doing everything that he can to please the dad. That's doing all that he can. Here you got a younger son that's pushing the boundaries and you have all of these personalities working in this home. And you got a dad. You know, I wrote this down, but the reality is Dads, we live in a day of few disciplines, don't we? We live in a day when children seem to rule the home, dictate the schedules. They're narcissistic, self-centered, empowered with little in the way of boundaries today. Children are growing up without boundaries. They're, They're not taught any life skills. They're not taught to pick up after themselves. They're not given basic organizational skills. They're often addicted to technology. Today like never before. Kids are so addicted to technology today, it's as if they can't even function without it. Domino's Pizza, I was reading this Domino's Pizza. It said Domino's mind-ordering app uses facial recognition and eye-tracking technology to allow test subjects to use their powers to order pizza by making certain facial expressions and head movements. This is what they call an immersive experience which places you inside Hawkins National Lab and Netflix is uh, is featuring this as based on Stranger Things. But this is the kind of world that we're living in. It's the kind of world that we're trying to raise children in and it's very, very difficult today to raise kids. You know, people say, my dad said one time, he, he said, and he'll be watching this, he said, you know, son, he said, your generation hasn't discovered anything new. He said, sex is not something new. Alcohol, drugs, none of that's new. It's been around a very long time. I said, dad, that's true, but the availability of it is a lot more than it ever was when you were raising us. It's a different world. We're living in a different world. Society has turned its back and closed its eyes. Things are just different today. I read this while I was reading this book. I took it back to Barnes & Noble because I didn't agree with it. David Gergens wrote a book called Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. And it stresses the qualities of greatness and leadership. In his book, he quotes another great work by a man by the name of Malcolm Gladwell's book called Outliers, The Story of Success. Listen to this, mom and dad. He set out to see why some people are successful. He came back and said this, Dad, listen, 10,000 hours is the magic number of greatness. He went on to break that down. 
He said to be great, it requires 10,000 hours. So if your child is to be great, if there's to, to be successful, somewhat of a prodigy, then it would require that they spend 10,000 hours or better in a particular area of discipline. Let me, let me break it down. 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours over 10 years is 1,000 hours a year. That equals 19 hours a week. That equals 2.75 hours every day. Nearly three hours every day, your child is devoting themselves to whatever it is. I have a niece who has a daughter who Simone Biles has picked up and said that she has the potential. And John, she, they live in Orlando. They live down in Florida. She has the potential and right now is the number one on the beam in gymnastics in the state of Florida. And Florida takes seriously gymnastics. This little kid is this tall, petite, beautiful, and works every day, hours and hours and hours and hours, training on gymnastics, and more particularly the beam. You know, I wrote down here, he went on to say that people at the top don't work hard. They don't work much harder. Listen to what he said. He said they work much, much harder. While your boy is eating little Debbies and playing video games, they are making a difference in the world. Gladwell went on to say, practice isn't the thing you do once you're good. It's the thing you do to, that makes you good. Sheila and I are watching the U.S. Open. Tiger Woods. You know what Tiger Woods would do? Tiger Woods' dad. And when Tiger Woods' dad died, it affected him in the mind. Tiger Woods went through a great mind-altering time trying to cope with life after the death of his dad. Do you know what his dad would do when he was a boy to train him to be a prodigy in golfing? Hours and hours of playing golf his dad would walk out, drop balls down in the sand trap, step on them and push them down into the sand. And then tell Tiger, even when he was a boy, now hit the ball out of the sand trap onto the green. Mozart, we think Mozart was a prodigy. He was not. In fact, some of Mozart's early concertos, some of the things that he did early on were written by his father. Because he wasn't that good. But he practiced endlessly. And he became a prodigy. The Beatles. We think the Beatles were just naturally a good group. They were not. They were not very good at all. In fact, the truth of the matter is the Beatles, prior to becoming famous, had probably spent 12, they had probably performed 1,200 times in bars and, and, you know, districts around England with very little in the way of money. Parent, let me tell you, if your child is to be great and to be everything that God's called them to be, it probably would require that you put some effort toward helping them live a disciplined life. And playing video games will probably rob us of greatness. Why? Because society loses if your child does not discover God's will. 
I had a woman last week who came up to me at a at a party and she began to talk to me and began to open up to me about her children and finally I looked at her and I said that 14 year old son out there I said you have one responsibility your one responsibility is to ensure that that young man knows Christ and he is in the perfect will of God doing what God's called him here to do that's your responsibility that's what you're to do And I went on to tell her, I said, you give him the discipline and the skills he needs to achieve that calling. Alan Tisdale is here. And Alan, forgive me, sometimes I use Shelby and Kinsey. But I want to to use Shelby as an example. Alan, I need you to listen closely because Celia will probably come after me if, if she doesn't hear this clearly, if she's listening online. Shelby, Tisdale, and Kinsey from the time they came here, they were gifted. Uh, Alan and Celia, when they first came here with their two daughters, the daughters were young, small, uh, you know. In fact, Alan came here, they were really frustrated with the church. Alan was not happy. Alan said that I, they came here the first time and that I was preaching and I wasn't happy with the message and I wadded my notes up and threw it at the door. And Alan said, this is the church we need to be at. And so we've watched Kinsey and Shelby grow up. Kinsey went on full scholarship to Mercer University. Shelby now is at Duke University on full scholarship. When, when Shelby would visit and she'd sit back here, Kinsey is more difficult. But when Shelby would sit back there, uh, Sheila would always come by and say, make sure you speak to Shelby. Because I've always encouraged Shelby. She's gifted. She's academically gifted. And so I go back there and we get into these conversations. Now I know through Alan and Celia what Shelby has said. Shelby feels a call to be a teacher. Not just simply to be a teacher. She wants to be a teacher in the city of Jackson. Not just in the city of Jackson, but in South Jackson, in the inner city. She has a strong calling to do that. And so right now, Shelby is in Boston writing the curriculum and teaching in an environment much like she would be if she were in Jackson. But in my conversation with her, we're sitting back there, she's telling me about what she feels God's leading her to do. And you know what I'm doing? I'm sitting there going, I'm sitting, she's talking about being a teacher, being a teacher in the city of, I I, I said, Shelby, I said, "Are, are you sure that God has not called you into the medical field? I said, because you're gifted and you have so much academic ability. Uh, are you sure it's not a doctor? Are you, and I didn't say doctor. This is my exact words. Are you sure that God has not called you to be a pediatric cardiologist? Because let me tell you something. We need a pediatric cardiologist. In this state... And she said, Brother Jeff, I know that I know that this is God's call on my life. This is what God's call. Are you sure? This past week, I get the frantic call of a grandmother who used to be a member of this church. She calls and says, Brother Jeff, I need you to pray for my granddaughter. She said, my granddaughter, my, my daughter-in-law woke up. My granddaughter, my granddaughter quit breathing. She's an infant, a baby. She said, she's a neonatal uh, nurse her daughter-in-law, so she was able to do CPR on her own baby and bring this baby back basically very close and was able to save her own child. 
She's frantically the daughter-in-law with this woman's daughter-in-law with their grandbaby making her way to the hospital. They get to the hospital and the hospital says there's only one place we can send you. This baby's already had one open heart surgery and we'll have numerous more. And the grandmother's crying and she said, I, it, just, it just breaks my heart. My grandbaby's fighting so hard for life. She's going on and on about this. And guess what? You want to guess where they were sending this little baby, what this baby needed, a pediatric cardiologist. You want to guess where she's going? Duke University. You see, Alan and Celia's parents have a responsibility to recognize the bent in both Kinsey and Shelby, to encourage them, to discipline them, to lead them and give them every opportunity to discover what God's will is in their child's life. And I've been called alongside of them as their pastor to ensure that Shelby is in the perfect will of God wherever that may be. And that cardiologist, that pediatric cardiologist may be Maxine Russell. And my responsibility along with Bell and Russell is to ensure that Maxine has every opportunity to be what God has called her to be. I'm not her parent, nor am I Shelby's parent. I am her pastor. But we've been entrusted in trying to see what God's will is. Does that make sense? And you may say, well, you're getting off track. No, I'm not. Because this is parenting. This is what it means to be a dad. And sometimes a dad has to let go. You see, this dad was willing to let go. That younger son was determined. He was going to live life his own way. He was rebelling against authority. And sometimes, parent, as children reach a certain age, you've got to let go. You've got to listen. You can't take them to the woodshed anymore. You let God take them to his woodshed. It's called life. This dad was willing to let his son go. He gave his son every opportunity. In fact, I wrote this down to continue to harbor a grown adult child living in rebellion to your beliefs is to do to both them and God a disservice. His father was willing to let go of the prodigal. But I want to say again, dad, your purpose, your responsibility, mom, is to determine what is God's will, God's direction, God's bent on your sons, your daughters, and to do everything you can to point them in that direction so that they're everything God would have them to be. And we're living in a day where parents today are not doing much of anything. Children are not even taught basic personal hygiene. They don't know what it is to read a book. They don't know what it is to listen to music. They don't know what it is to get outside. They know nothing about art. You know, I watch Mariah as she's developed. And no, there's no grasping and understanding as she does her artwork, what God may do in her life. I don't know what it is. But I want to encourage you to find that. Well, uh, I'm about out of time. and I don't even have my watch forgot my watch I am close to being out of time there's an M&M bag I guess I had to pay a pack of M&M's dad I know it's hard and to dads that may be watching later on I know it's hard 
Kids are different. Caleb, that's true, isn't it? Got a brand new baby boy named Hal. Is Hal keeping y'all up? Sometimes. And I asked I asked Caleb, he called this past week and we were talking, and I said to Caleb, I said, Caleb is uh is uh how gonna is he different from CJ? And Caleb said somewhat. It's tough being a dad. But then you have to step up to the plate and do what God's called you to be and to do. And sometimes you're dealing with children that are very, very different. Some are compliant, obedient. Some are not like the buggy. You just kind of let them go. They're doing fine. Some are very, very difficult and hard. Let me close with an illustration. I'm... was telling Sheila about this illustration and I wept. How many of you have ever seen the movie Sully? I was talking about this Wednesday night. Sully is the, is the story of, the, of Chelsea Burnett Solenberger III. I see why they called him Sully. Sully was the, was the pilot, the captain of U.S. Airways Flight 1549. And if you remember a few years ago, they hit a flock of geese. And when they hit a flock of geese, both engines shut down, shut off. So this man, this captain that goes by the name of Sully, all of a sudden was the captain of a, of a, of a plane with about 200 people on it, 155 souls, they say, on this airplane with no engine. He's left out of LaGuardia and he's trying to get back to LaGuardia. They tell him there is an empty runway. So here he is gliding, if you could call it gliding. He is falling at an accelerated, uh, he's falling at a certain number of feet per second. He has three and a half minutes from the time he hits the flock of geese till he puts the plane down. Three and a half minutes total. This is what was interesting. It fascinated me. When they saw this flock of geese and they hit those engines, all of a sudden they could smell that flesh of those birds and they could hear that metal just literally being ripped apart and then all of a sudden... mm, Mmm. And dead silence. Listen to this. The co-pilot, a guy named Jeffrey Skiles, his co-pilot, they had never flown together before, had kind of hit it off. The co-pilot said these words, Captain, the plane is yours. Now, let me explain something. According to the FAA and according to flights, when you have a catastrophic event on an airplane, that is standard. In the cockpit at that moment, the co-pilot, anyone in the cockpit in that moment turns and says those words, Captain, the plane is yours. 
at that moment, no discussion, no talking, no who's doing what. Immediately, the entire stress of that catastrophe is on Captain Sully. The flight controls telling him they think he can make it to LaGuardia. FAA ran this scenario over and over again thousands of times. Couldn't do it. Finally, Captain Sully makes the decision that he will land the plane in New York City on the Hudson River. And he's thinking to himself, he's got to bring the nose up of the plane as it's falling. It's falling like this. So in the last minute, he pulls the nose up, trying to get the belly of the, of the plane to lay on the Hudson River. Then he has the responsibility, he's wondering if the plane will immediately sink. 155 people, stewardess, flight attendants, people in the cockpit, everyone. He ensures that everyone is safely off the plane. He said it was a God thing. Two ferries, two ferries on the Hudson River just happened to be on both sides and in moments they were there plucking those people out of frigid water where they would have died in a matter of a few a minute. Guess who's the last one dead to get off the plane? He said one more miracle. He said his phone was not wet. He said, I was wet. He went through the plane to make sure everybody was off the plane. He said his phone was not wet. He called his wife from, a, from that catastrophe. And he said, you're getting ready to see this on the news. I want you and my two girls to know dad's all right. And everybody else is all right. Dad, listen to me. Sometimes that's the way it feels. This is a tough time to be a dad, tough time to raise kids, tough time in our history, in the nation's history. And you may say, well, Brother Jeff, are you saying that, uh, that, that you're saying to me that the, the, the family, the marriage, the family, the, the community, the nation, are you saying that, are you looking at me and saying in this catastrophe that the plane is yours? No, I'm not. I'm looking at you and saying these words. There better be a meeting in your life and in your marriage and in your home and your parenting and your job and your community and your nation and your world that simply says as a man where you look at Jesus Christ and say, my marriage, my home, my family, my kids, they're yours, Lord. You know what the co-pilot is doing? The co-pilot's pulling the manual out. Three and a half minutes. He's searching the manual. That's a dad. That's a dad. He's searching the manual every day. Oh God. Marriage is tough right now. I'm the lovers. Christ loved the church. She's too hard to love right now. And Jesus whispers, I'll give you strength. Oh, Lord. He's so rebellious, so defiant. He's breaking our hearts. 
says, I got this. Turn them over to me. Everything will be all right. God, I got a bad report. I don't think I can beat this cancer, God. John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. God, I miss my daughter. I miss my son. They're with me. Trust me. And you'll see them soon. Let's pray. Would you stand? Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come to you. And Lord, we love you. Lord, for every parent in this room, for every dad, every mom, dear Lord, it's frightening, it's scary. But yet, God, you've not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And God, as parents, as dads, today you've called us to love our wives as Christ loved the church, to love her with an abandonment, even when sometimes she may be difficult to love. You've called dad in this room to, to be the leader, but yet you've warned dads, you've said, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Because dad is an authority that if he's not careful, he can push and prod children drive them away. God, help us not to do that. God, give us the strength that we need sometimes as parents to let go of our kids and to trust the sovereign God that, God, you've got this, and I'm just going to have to let you have it, have him, have her. God, I pray today that you would strengthen dads, but I pray today that every dad in this room and every dad who may be listening and every mom, every parent has given their life to you. They know that they know that they're saved, that they have entered into a personal, intimate relationship, that they understand what it means to fellowship with a sovereign God through the power of his indwelling Holy Spirit. That, Lord, they understand that what it means when when sometimes a parent just cries out, and I've been there, when you just cry out, Jesus, and that's all you can say. You just say, Jesus. And you know that in that moment, the audience of the mighty is there. And sometimes, dear Lord, there's been those moments when I felt Jesus just say to me, Son, I've got this. You just trust me. There are young parents in this room, dear Lord. They have... If they're they're afraid, they're fearful, they're yet to navigate the years ahead. They know nothing about teenage years. They know nothing about as children begin to date, as they begin to seek out who they'll marry. They know nothing about how they'll agonize over careers and fight through tests. And sometimes will be at the end of the rope when their doors seem to be closing, and they come to you and they say, "Mom, I've just I've poured everything into this degree." But if I don't pass this test, it's over. And for every young parent in this room that sometimes thinks that it's easy, may they never forget that without Jesus Christ, they will surely fail. They need Jesus for the battles that are yet to come in their life. 
And so, Lord, I pray today that you wrap your arms around moms and dads, parents. I pray, dear Lord, that if there is a rebellious son or daughter, that, Lord, you woo them and draw them back and may they realize that, Lord, that parent loves them in a way that nobody else ever will. There's not a day that I don't miss my mom. My mom had problems. But I remember a time when I took a stand on the racial issue in Natchez. I remember, dear Lord, when people were threatening my life only only to see my mom with all of her problems walking into that church. Little frail looking, little frail looking woman looked like she had took on all the deacons. She wasn't intimidated or frightened by none of them who was there to let me know there ain't nobody going to hurt my baby. Son, God's got this. So God, I pray today that you speak to the hearts of people and that, dad, that dads would be, that, that dads would realize, Jesus, you need to be in the captain's seat. It's not God is my co-pilot. I don't want God my co-pilot. I want him in the captain's chair. So dad, I pray that they are encouraged. Mom, that she's encouraged. Single parents who are doing it alone, that you would encourage them. And if somebody needs to make a decision, they will make it today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.